The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. What was the decisive moment of the Civil War? Was it at Gettysburg? Was it at Vicksburg or Antietam? Chattanooga, or was it in hundreds of one-room schoolhouses across the North in the 1840s? That is where tonight's guest finds the key to Union victory. He's the author of Engineering Victory, How Technology Won the Civil War. His name is Thomas F. Army Jr., and he's our guest on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from our usual home on the third floor of the Brewster Building in Greenville, North Carolina, on the campus of East Carolina University, but not speaking for the university, not representing the history department. I'm the only person in the building, apparently, at this moment, which houses many departments, not just history, on a quiet, cool Wednesday evening in May of 2016. So... Speaking just for myself, and I know my guests will do the same, we are here. It's the moment between semesters. We had graduation a week ago. 
week and a half ago. We had summer school starting shortly, but not yet, I don't think. And I'm not teaching it, not really sure what day, but nobody's around. It's very quiet. It's a very pleasant time to be on campus and get work done, uh, work on a book proposal, work on courses to be taught in the fall, and uh, especially work on the uh, programming for the This Hallowed Ground Tour of Civil War Sites, which will be taking place next week. We will not have a live show for you. Our hosts at Voice America will play a repeat show while I'm off with the guests of the Stephen Ambrose Historical uh, Tour Company as we go through the sites in Virginia, Maryland, and Pennsylvania. If anyone who's going on the tour is listening tonight, I'm looking forward to meeting you, and uh, we're going to have a really interesting time. If you're not going, I'll bet even at this late hour, the uh, Stephen Ambrose historical tours would find money worthwhile, so you could probably still contact them and uh, get a spot on the bus. But it's, it's I'm, I'm all agog. It is literally the uh, busman's holiday. I'll be riding a bus uh, talking about what I do for a living, which is Civil War history, but enjoying it thoroughly uh, like a holiday. So should be fun. Looking forward to that very much. Uh, no live show, therefore, next week. Before uh, getting into the show, just a, a quick note to thank everyone who has sent email here in the last uh, few weeks. There's always a steady uh, stream, sometimes a trickle, sometimes a flow of email coming in from listeners around the world. I always enjoy that, try to respond. Sometimes it takes me weeks, and I apologize for that. Sometimes I get it right back the next day. But some very, uh, very nice emails coming in lately, some good suggestions for future guests who uh, we are lining up for uh, the fall semester, uh, a very uh, warm one from uh, Daniel Sharon, who suggested a guest uh, not too long ago writing about David Herbert Donald, my graduate advisor. Uh, that was at Harvard University, in case I haven't mentioned that yet today. And... Uh, uh, but a really nice uh, commentary on, on Professor Donald that I appreciated. Uh, another nice one from a note, a listener who said this program has rekindled uh, his interest in the Civil War, and that thought was much appreciated. Uh, I've gotten questions asking about sites to visit. Uh, I got one from uh, a listener uh, just found the show recently who mentioned his own website, which deals with uh, miniature war games, particularly uh, naval Age of Sail games. Uh, Google the War Artisan, and you'll find that site. I don't have the, the have it right in front of me. But it's just what I need, another way to use up valuable time, looking at really cool pictures of uh, military hobbies. Uh, but it was a very uh, thoughtful, very nice message. So to anyone who writes, uh, thank you. I apologize if I don't respond as soon as I should, but every message is much appreciated, uh, and uh, I will try to get back to you. Well, as I said, there's no live show next week. We'll be on the road the week after. June 1, we'll be back in gear uh, talking about the wives of four of Lincoln's Generals. The book is titled Lincoln's Generals' Wives for Women Who Influenced the Civil War for Better and for Worse. 
and the author is Candace Hooper. Should be an interesting discussion. On June 8th, Bridget Ford is the author of Bonds of Union, Religion, Race, and Politics in a Civil War Borderland. And then on June 15th, Mark Bielski will join us. He is the author of Sons of the White Eagle in the American Civil War, Divided Poles and a Divided Nation, a book about Polish officers fighting on both sides of the war. Mark also works for Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, so technically for the next week he will be my boss, or at least I will be his contractor. That's not why he's on the show. Uh, actually, it's the only reason he's on the show. The book is terrible. No, I have, I, I, teasing Mark, don't, don't kick me off the bus. Haven't read the book yet, uh, but looking forward to it very much, and uh, from our discussions I know it'll be good. Then on June 22nd, Christopher Lyle McElwain Sr. rounds out the end of the spring semester with a uh, a work about Civil War Alabama, and we'll find out about that state. My younger daughter was home, she was watching Sweet Home Alabama, speaking of that state, for probably the 74th time, but today I was gratified to learn she was home watching Gone with the Wind. Uh, it's, it's the end of her semester and before her summer job, so she's enjoying the life of a leisurely 20-year-old for a few days, and she was watching Gone with the Wind, having first read the book. I, I'm, we just don't do that much anymore, read the book and then see the movie, and uh, I was very pleased that she did that. I look forward to talking it over with her. One of the questions she asked as she got into it was, when was this written? Listen to some of this language, and uh, she, she's got that historical sensibility where you hear how someone describes a particular social phenomenon and you think that can't be contemporary. That's got to be 50 years old or 100 years old. So she's getting that historical ear that uh, uh, most of us uh, who follow the Civil War have developed over time. Well, you can develop yours further by buying the books available uh, from our authors. Go to www.impedimentsofwar.org and there you We'll find out who's going to be on the show, not just this season, but also we'll, we'll get the fall names up there sometime this summer. We've got some lined up already. You can find links to books that our authors have written, and thus, if you buy them by clicking on those links, we get a little pass-through that goes to Mark Gaffney, who keeps the website running. There's also a donation button. You can click on that, and uh, that sends money to me, which I, in turn, used to pay for my daughter's education, so she reads books like Gone with the Wind. It all comes full circle. Or I just use it to buy whatever I want. It's not tax deductible. It's not a charitable contribution. Uh, But it is a way of showing appreciation for the show if you feel so moved to do that. Well, tonight's show brings us uh, yet another uh, of those books. I, I get emails from people who resent the show because they hear about these books and they must have them. And this is one that's going to fall in that category for a lot of listeners, I think. The title is Engineering Victory, How Technology Won the Civil War. The author is Thomas F. Army, Jr. Professor Army, are you there? Yes, I am, Jerry. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me on. The uh, uh, You and I have not crossed paths on the, the Civil War trail at any conferences yet, uh, I, I hope we can be informal if I can call you Tom, Thomas, is, what do you prefer? Uh, please call me Tom. 
uh, I'll, I will do that. So Tom and Jerry, it's like the cat and mouse. Yeah. Uh, uh, tell me a little bit about your background. Were you destined with the last name Army to write about military topics? Well, uh, perhaps I was, but my, um, my journey um, to get to this point in my own career was a rather uh, circuitous route. Um, I started out as a middle school teacher and then became a high school teacher until 1990 when I was um, asked to become the headmaster of a New England boarding school in northeastern Connecticut. And for the next 19 years, uh, I served in that post. Um, My wife is an Episcopal priest, and she was working as um, a hospice chaplain at a local hospital when she was called to um, take over a parish near Hartford, Connecticut. And at that point, I thought that uh, perhaps it was time to do something else, perhaps to go back to the reason why I got into education in the first place. And I had always wanted to get my Ph.D. Um, I had, uh, I'd earned both my uh, B.A. and M.A. from Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. So I applied, and I got into the UMass Amherst program. And uh, it was there that um, studying under uh, Heather Cox Richardson, um, who is now um, teaching at Boston College, um, I developed this idea. Um, wrote my dissertation, and one of my um, dissertation committee members, uh, Merritt Rose Smith, who is the history, uh, who is um, who runs the history and technology program at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, um, liked it enough that he put me in touch with the people at Johns Hopkins, and uh, they liked the idea, and so after I got my Ph.D. I spent the next two years uh, turning a dissertation into a book, and uh, here we are today. Wow. It, it, it's, uh, I'm always fascinated by the journeys people have taken to get where they are. The old model of, of high school, college, graduate school, get a teaching job at a university, and there you go for 40, 50 years, that does not happen very much anymore, and mm-hmm. uh, it's always something different. My wife teaches at a uh, an independent school, and uh, I have a close friend, a college buddy, who teaches at Falmouth Academy in, in Cape Cod and is retired. Oh, sure, I know it well. Uh, so you're you're not too far if you're in Northeast Connecticut. What school were you at? Uh, I was at it's called the Rectory School mm-hmm. in uh, Pomfret, Connecticut, in the northeast corner. Okay. The the uh, headmaster's job. I keep teasing my wife that uh, she should be the headmaster at her school because she is smarter than everybody else there, in in my view. Uh, but that's that's just my view. Um, and yet she thinks that 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 job just looks. I don't know if daunting is the word, but uh, every day is certainly different. To put it that way. It is indeed, and your uh, wife is, a, and I've never met her, but she's a very wise woman. Um, uh, the, the job of head of school these days um, is both 
wonderful and challenging, but also it can be very, very onerous. And that's especially true for uh, people who have spent uh, a career as teachers. Um, I, I think for people in independent schools who have spent some time in administration, um, they seem eager um, to move or attempt to move to the headmaster track. But I think for faculty members, what happens is that when you become the head of school, um, unless you insist upon teaching a class, your responsibilities become very, very different, and you're really running a small business. You're concerned about budgets. You're concerned about fundraising. Um, You have the joy of hiring faculty, but you also have the difficult task of dismissing faculty. And, of course, um, you know, the school's discipline stops at your desk. And then there are the politics that go on behind the scenes with, you know, boards of trustees and different views about the mission and future of the school. And all of these have to be navigated by the head. And, you know, I found them exhilarating, but as um, my time wore on, um, I really started, to to be honest with you, Jerry, I I was wearing down, you know, I Mm -hmm. felt like um, I was being pecked to to death by a group of ducks, and uh, (laughs) I I uh, I needed to go back and do what I had started out doing in education, and that was um, uh, researching and writing and, and being in a classroom with students. And so, uh, and so that's what I did. Well, I, I, I'm certain that was the right choice. I feel the same way in miniature after being department chair for eight years where I had to deal with budgets and scheduling and hiring and sometimes not rehiring. Uh, it's it's wonderful to be back just in the classroom and just reading books and doing this program and uh, working on new writing uh, much better than – it's a great relief to be back to doing what, what we mm-hmm. trained to do. Uh, we're going to take a short break, but to segue to where we're going to go, uh, the union has many officers who trained as engineers uh, – but when the war comes, they want to they want to fight, and they they don't always act as engineers. But we're going to talk about engineering and where it comes from, and how, uh, in your view, it won the Civil War. That's a big and provocative statement. We'll come back and ask our guest Thomas F. Army Jr. how technology won the Civil War. When we return, I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live and on demand. 
No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Thomas F. Army Jr. He is the author of Engineering Victory, How Technology Won the Civil War. We talked a bit in the first segment about how uh, Dr. Army came to write this book, uh, earning his Ph.D. as a uh, later career move after uh, serving as uh, headmaster for a, a school for many years. So, Tom, as I read this book, it was recognizable very clearly as a, a dissertation that has become a book, and I mean that in in the best way that it has a clear thesis. Uh, one of the, the contrasts uh, that I know listeners recognize between some of the books that we talk about on the show, mm-hmm. written by journalists or uh, just enthusiasts, is they write about what interests them, but a trained historian has an argument to make, has, has a, a central idea. And this book, it seems to me, had two theses, I thought. One, that uh, engineering was the key to Union victory, and the second one explaining why the Union had superior engineering. And I want to address the second one first. Uh, The claim technology won the Civil War. When I first saw the title, I was a little taken aback. I thought this might be a book written by a professional engineer who has got the Civil War bug and has read about the magnificent bridges and the, the crater at Petersburg and uh, some other great engineering stories. And since he's an engineer, therefore engineers won the war. It, is that claim really defensible or is, it, or is it something that is there because it might sell some books and it might impress the dissertation committee that this is an original idea? Uh, did engineering really make the difference in the Civil War? Well, Jerry, I think it did. Mm -hmm. Um, I think as I got deeper and deeper into the research, um, and I began to investigate 
why there were more men in northern engineering regiments than there were um, in the Confederate armies, and I looked at uh, a half a dozen key campaigns during the war. Uh, I came to recognize that what the engineers were able to accomplish um, transformed the operations that the generals then conducted um, and led directly to, um, in some cases, victory on the battlefield, in other cases not, but led to um, this movement by the Union Army uh, to acquire this vast territory um, that were being defended by the Confederate States. And as they began to control that territory, um, it was only in controlling that territory um, that led ultimately to victory. And what I argue in the book is that there really was a deadline as well. Um, I think that in spite of fewer material resources and manpower, uh, that the Confederacy had a chance, if not to win the war, certainly to gain their independence, or even to come back into the Union with slavery intact and with a reasonable solution to the problems in the territories, um, until Lincoln was reelected in 1864. So, I would say yes. I, I, I would, I would stick by my thesis that yes, engineering was the difference maker um, in the war. Well, you you argue that by going through a number of chapters, looking at different campaigns where where this is the case, and. Again, my initially I was skeptical. You start with a vignette from the Vicksburg campaign, and, mm-hmm. and I think most listeners to the show are aware of the many engineering efforts connected with that campaign to mm-hmm. dig a canal, uh, to divert the Mississippi, to get boats into rivers where boats don't normally go. Uh, and ultimately, Grant is successful at that. But you argue that, that engineering plays a role in a lot of campaigns. And I guess I, I was struck as you lay them out one after another how in each each of these uh, there is some element of military engineering where the North is able to do things, is able to move troops around, uh, or or conversely where the South isn't able to do things. Uh, for example, uh, the the campaign in Fort Henry and Fort Donelson, eighteen sixty-two. Uh, you point out that the it was not just superior northern engineering, but inferior Confederate engineering that made a difference. Mm-hmm. Could mm-hmm. you talk about that? Yeah, um, you know, to your first point, um, you know, you can go back as early as um, Island Number Ten. And, and, and by the way, um, when you mentioned uh, the, the two attempts at canal building uh, 
during mm-hmm. the Vicksburg complaint, uh, campaign, it's important to point out that both of those failed. So I, I, you know, I try throughout the book you know, to deal with this in a very, very straightforward um, and honest fashion. I mean, I point out the flaws or certain circumstances where engineers fail. <clears throat> but, the, but the larger point is that the, the failure, I believe, was linked to um, the cultural ethos that had grown up in the North during the antebellum period. Um, uh, this idea that um, individuals try to make a better mousetrap. Um, you know, farmers making their own tools. Obviously, not all of those tools were successful. People, people tinkering with uh, how to make a better stove or machinists how to build more effective screw threads. Um, all of these projects don't succeed, but the idea was that it didn't stop you from trying to do something else. And so when the war breaks out and some union engineering efforts fail, it doesn't prevent um, the the men who are assigned engineers or the, the generals that lead them from trying something else. You know, Grant did not quit on the engineers because the two two canal projects failed. Now, if we go back and look at some of these other campaigns, um, like Island Number 10, you know, that's another good example. I'm not sure that the canal dug by uh, Joshua Bissell's Missouri engineers to circumvent Island Number 10 to move John Pope's supplies um, to the south side of the island was necessarily the absolute thing that brought about the collapse of uh, the Confederate fortresses on the island. I think it did indeed put pressure um, on the fortifications. But the fact that they were able to do it, the fact that they were able to cut a seven-mile canal um, through both uh, timberland and swampland um, impressed everyone. It impressed Union generals who were looking at this campaign. It impressed even Southerners who were looking at this from afar. Um, I believe that I quote the Macon Telegraph um, after the campaign, saying that this was um, a remarkable thing done by these Yankee engineers. And that learning, that teeth-cutting, if you will, um, continued to improve. And so when you get to places like Chattanooga and then the Atlanta campaign and the Carolina campaign or with Grant at Petersburg, um, this engineering organization has really evolved, as have the skills that these men are acquiring. And so they're really f- 
firing on all cylinders to execute um, in the final campaigns of the war, uh, you know, what turns out to be really, truly remarkable engineering stuff. Well, it, certainly that is the case at the end of the war when uh, you know, Sherman is marching through the swamps of the Carolinas, corduroying the roads as they go, and uh, uh, Joe Johnston uh, you know, cannot believe, what was his quote there, there's never been an army like this since Julius Caesar, mm-hmm. uh, or, or putting a pontoon bridge across the James River in eight hours. Uh, it, it is really an amazing uh, feat. Well, but you touched on something that, that the fail, failed attempts are as important as the successes because they embody this spirit. And that, that is what won me over as I read this. Not so much that the canal or, or the tunnel or the bridge or, or any particular engineering project tactically won a given campaign, although they were certainly significant, but that there was a... a a whole different way of approaching the world uh, that the northern soldiers embodied that proved superior in in warfare to the uh, to the southern way of thinking. You you talked about the uh, the, the the tinkering in the the pre-war era. Uh, I, I, there are so many good ideas here. I'm trying to to to, to thank you keep myself in check and just ask you about one <laughs> one at a time. Um, the idea of the individual at home building a better mousetrap, uh, that the northern farmer is always tinkering with things, trying to make things better, uh, this is part of it, because these are not trained engineers that we're talking about, are, are they? No, that's correct. One of the things that I wanted to emphasize was that these, uh, for the most part, part, are not West Point engineers. Um, and that's part of the, uh, this uh, idea of, of being different makers, different makers that I uh, try to point out. You know, the, the, when the war broke out, um, West Point trained engineers um, were divided. Uh, some went south, uh, some stayed north. But as it turned out very, very quickly, that was not going to be enough to manage a war that was going to be fought over this vast um, space and with armies that were going to be, you know, 20 times larger than United States trained professional soldiers had ever seen before. You know, prior to 1862, the largest United States Army in the field was probably um, Winfield Scott's forces at uh, during his um, Veracruz to Mexico City campaign, and fifteen thousand men. Um, you know, during the Civil War, um, you know, war was a division, and so you had to find these engineers from somewhere, and the Union Army. I argue, had the resources. They were tapping men who were enlisting in the Union Army, who had backgrounds as machinists and tool builders, who worked in railroad yards or as shipbuilders, and 
they were able to convert these men into military engineers, and they were all led by uh, civil engineers um, or men who had, uh, you know, been business owners of lumber yards or shipbuilding steamship facilities. And these men uh, were able to do these uh, remarkable feats um, because they had learned this, at least the, the building trade, um, in the decades before the war. And that was really, really crucial. And that's why the South, I believe, suffered for lack of engineers. I mean, I've had people um, uh, who have read the book and who politely say to me, yes, but, you know, the South had some wonderful engineers. And uh, the truth of the matter is that they did. Um, But they didn't have many of them. And they were particularly skilled at building fortifications. They built um, some remarkable fortifications, as we all know, around Vicksburg. Um, The Petersburg and Atlanta fortifications, the fortifications built around Richmond, um, these were particular works of art um, designed by skilled engineers. But these fortifications, I argue, were very traditional. Um, Southern engineers had a lot of time to lay them out, and uh, for the most part, they used slave labor to build them. But when circumstances demanded an immediate response, uh, the manpower just wasn't there. And most of these union engineering operations were done um, out of a sense of urgency and immediacy. Um, For example, when Grant is pressing, he's now on the uh, eastern side of Vicksburg. He's moving from Jackson, Mississippi, towards the siege lines, and he has to cross the Big Black River. Um, His pontoon train is a day's march behind his lead columns, and he wants to cross. He's concerned that Pemberton might try to escape. It was a absolutely reasonable concern, and that the more time delayed in getting across the Big Black and besieging the city, um, the less likely that Pemberton would be able to escape. But, as I said, he had no pontoons, and so three different... Um, groups of men built three different pontoon bridges, basically with nothing. Um, And the entire army and its artillery and wagons all successfully crossed. Um, And those types of stories come up again and again and again. Well, they they do, and they really show a difference in, in mindset toward engineering and indeed labor in general. We're going to take another short break and come back and and focus on that question in our our last segment. Talking today with Thomas F. Army Jr., author of Engineering Victory, How Technology Won the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. 
the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Tom Army, author of Engineering Victory, How Technology Won the Civil War. That's a big claim, but it's a very, very interesting book that makes its argument in ways more subtle than just uh, the U.S. forces built better bridges or forts or uh, railroads than the, the Confederate forces. It, it makes uh, a number of arguments. I mentioned early on that it seemed one of, your, your, one of the underpinnings of the thesis is that the North had more engineers because of the educational systems and I want to hold off on that point just because there's uh, barely time to discuss everything. Um, But when I started reading and the first couple chapters are about uh, antebellum education comparing northern and southern systems, if you're reading Civil War history and it's like eating ice cream, you just love to read Civil War history, and you come up against a chapter and it's all about education, it's sort of like a dish of broccoli. This is good for you, but it's not what I bargained on. But I really like broccoli myself. And a diet of ice cream grows a little rich and tiresome after a while. And this was just really good stuff to to uh, to supplement and strengthen the the rest of the argument to see where why the these northern regiments are filled with men who are interested in tinkering, are interested in finding a solution to things, are amenable to that kind of work. And more important, and and you bring this out, I I think the entire difference in the concept of dignity of labor between the North and South, that the Northern soldiers regard it as perfectly acceptable to roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty, dig in the mud, think of a way to come up with a bridge and then actually build the bridge yourself. 
whereas a southern officer will be the bravest one, the first one to charge over the bridge, which he will have ordered his slave to construct because he doesn't know how to do it and he wouldn't is not going to get his hands dirty building it. Uh, so if the the Yankee looks at a hardtack box and a palm tree and says, yeah, I can make a bridge out of that. Mm-hmm. And the rebel says to his slaves, uh, build me a bridge out of that, and then I'll lead you across. I'll be the brave one. But the bridge is not going to be very good. Uh, no one's going to build it willingly. Either slaves will be driven to it or white men will be will do it unwillingly because that's enslaved work, not, not free person work. Mm-hmm. And that, that just comes out in every chapter, that, that it's a huge advantage for the North to have such a superior labor. Well, I think it, I, I mean, I think it was. Um, as, we, as you and I were talking at the beginning of our conversation, mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think that the North was on the clock. Um, the Northern public was not going to tolerate a war that lasted forever. And this was especially true in 1864 when um, Grant had lost so many men at Cold Harbor and then was having no luck in cracking Lee's defenses around Petersburg and Sherman was <clears throat> pounding away at Atlanta, um, but certainly from a distance, um, from northern newspapers' perspective, you know, it looked like it was going to be a prolonged siege as well. Uh, Mobile and Wilmington remained in southern hands. Um, and there was a presidential election coming up. And so if Union forces weren't able um, to break the defenses at Atlanta and give Lincoln the victory that he needed, um, the outcome could have been very, very different. But if you back up from there and then you take... Uh, Chattanooga and Vicksburg and not just Forts Henry and Donaldson but what follows of course which is the southern evacuation of Nashville if any one of those are delayed for say months just say even for weeks um, you can conceivably say that it could have had an impact on the outcome. Now, I know historians are not supposed to speculate, but I really do believe um, that this engineering was truly the difference maker. Well, I mean, that argues that without it, the North would have lost, which is logically not exactly the same as saying that because of it, the North won. But I, I think the bigger point that you make is the difference between the northern and southern mindset that is reflected in all these these incidents. There's uh, uh, Kenneth Greenberg's book on uh, 
it has an exceptionally long title, like a 200-word title, uh, but it touches on baseball and slavery and honor in the South. Mm-hmm. And he has an anecdote where a, a Southern soldiers are playing baseball and they give the bat to their officer and he swings and hits a tremendous blast, but then he just puts down the bat and stands there. And they say, run, Captain. And he doesn't because the gentleman does not run. He doesn't mm-hmm. run to first base. Um, the the ethos of the Southern leadership, you point out, is one of command, uh, but not one of accepting ideas from below. There's no initiative on the lower ranks. They're either enslaved people, or uh, in Southern society generally, uh, or 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 subservient to, to the hierarchy, where they they don't presume to tell their betters how things ought to be. And the North is full of people telling people other people how things ought to be and and how to make things better. Uh, I, that's correct, and I think one of the things that I I, I point out is that the, the Southern political leaders and business leaders in the antebellum period um, made a choice, <laughs> and the choice was um, to bask in the glow and in the wealth of plantation slavery um, and reject any other possible or reject or entertain any other possible um, economic development. Um, there, there was, for example, in the 1850s, there was a Southern nationalist movement. Um, there were um, Southerners who had gathered, I believe it was in Atlanta, I don't recall, and for this first Southern Nationalist Conference in the early 50s, and they recognized that if they were going to become an independent nation, they were going to need to develop the manufacturing to replace um, all the importing they were doing from the North. And yet, Ten years later, um, nothing had happened um, because that just wasn't part of their work ethos. It wasn't part of their makeup. It wasn't part of their culture. It's not what their fathers did before them or their grandfathers did before that. And, of course, that gets translated um, into the type of manpower resources they actually had when the war broke out. If you, you know, before the Civil War, the common school, um, common school reform was taking place throughout the entire North and West. Um, in the South, only one Southern state, North Carolina, had attempted to develop a common school program. Um, I mean, that was one of the things that I was, I was really baffled by uh, during my research. I remember going down to, um, I remember going down to the uh, state of Virginia um, Historical Society and to the state's archives, and I can remember asking an archivist if they had any information on um, Virginia common schools, <clears throat> and she said yes, and. Um, 
they came back with, uh, you know, on, on the cart with lots of boxes, and I started to go through them. And this was all material from 1870. And so I found her, and I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm sorry. Um, do you have any information on Virginia Common School, say, from 1845 to 1860? And she said, um, no, we don't have any material on that. And I said, well, would you know where I could look for stuff like that? And she didn't really know, so I did a little more research, and I really couldn't find anything. And, um, I, you know, at that moment, um, I thought, yeah, this is, this is what was happening between 1861 and 1865. Um, you know, Southerners, as Shelby Foote said, were fighting the war with one hand tied behind their back. But that one hand tied, I mean, the North was fighting with one hand tied behind their back. Mm-hmm. But it, it wasn't about manpower or manufacturing. It was about um, a particularly skilled group of soldiers. Well, the, the North having the advantage in education in the, the common school movement where there's free public education throughout much of the North by the 1850s and uh, very little of the same in the South means you have a, a much more educated workforce. It becomes a much more educated military force. But there are so many other interesting things you, you point out here. Uh, one, for example, was the, the difference in railroads. It's not that the South doesn't have a lot of railroads and even a lot of people who worked in railroads before the war, but they're all short lines that are just single spurs that go from an agricultural area to a port. And therefore, the owner of the railroad can oversee the whole thing himself, whereas the North has these really enormous railroad companies that require delegation. And so the North develops a, a class of middle managers of, of people with authority to make decisions without going up to the owner of the company because the owner can't be everywhere. And so, so you got this tradi- this habit of, of, of initiative that is missing in a different economy. That's correct. And so when um, Union soldiers get to a river crossing and, you know, the division commander is 15 miles away Mm -hmm. and the engineers arrive at this crossing without a pontoon bridge, no one's looking around um, saying, okay, what should we do now? Who do we ask to do this? No, it was, okay, Um, you know, the colonel in charge of the engineering regiment, the middle manager, mm-hmm. uh, takes charge. This is what we're going to do. And not only does he take charge, he's willing to take um, ideas and information from you know, the handful of captains and lieutenants he has with them, and maybe even from um, the enlisted men as they cobble together um, some sort of bridge. And that, of course, did not happen um, in the South. I mean, there, you mentioned the, uh, the Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson debacle of the Confederate engineers, but I think about um, the story of um, 
the Confederates trying to escape over High Bridge after uh, Richmond had fallen. And because someone in the chain of command forgot to tell someone else to burn the railroad bridge so the pursuing Yankees couldn't cross, it doesn't happen. It's delayed. And then, of course, when eventually they figure out that they do need to burn the bridge, uh, it's too late because um, the Northerners are on top of them and only a portion of the bridge gets burned. And so instead of spending 24 or 36 hours rebuilding the bridge, giving Lee that much more time as he's trying to get to um, the the railroad junction, um, the Union Army is across within eight hours and And, back on Lee's tail. That brings us to surrender, and unfortunately, that brings us to the end of our time tonight, uh, which flies by as always. But I found this book really, really interesting, uh, and and recommend it, uh, listeners. The Johns Hopkins University Press produced it. It's very good looking, uh, but really an interesting thesis, well argued, and uh, will will give you a new way of looking at. Union victory in the Civil War. The title is Engineering Victory, How Technology Won the Civil War. The author, our guest tonight, Thomas F. Army, Jr. Tom, thanks for being on the show. Jerry, thank you so much for having me. It's really been a lot of fun. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.